very word secrecy is repugnant in a free and open society. And we are, as a people, inherently and historically opposed to secret societies, to secret oaths, and to secret proceedings. questions you always had, the answers you were never given, the place to seek the truth. Welcome to Veritas. Greetings to everyone around the world. And our welcome to another edition of Veritas at VeritasRadio.com. I'm your host, Mal Fabregas, and I sincerely thank you for joining me once again. And if this is your first time, or your truth journey brought you here, welcome home. And to listen to tonight's excellent interview, the full interview, you know what to do. Just go to VeritasRadio.com and click on the subscribe button. You will receive your login immediately which will give you access to all of our material, hundreds of hours. Come on, give yourself the gift of truth. And by the way, don't forget to check sanitasradio.com also. If you want to take your truth journey to a different level, then check it out. If there is something that stimulates my overdeveloped sense of wonder and curiosity, it's the pyramids. We need to look with fresh eyes and, and use a different time frame to reconstruct the story of ancient Egypt. There's so much we don't know. But there are people in this world who have taken the risk of stepping outside of the proverbial box and are helping us to uncover the secrets of the past. I am honored to say that some people call this very radio program a modern day Mystery School. Tonight's special guest is Dr. Carmen Bolter. Dr. Bolter is a retired professor at the University of Calgary in Canada and is the creator of the Pyramid Code series and author of Angels and Archetypes, an evolutionary map of feminine consciousness. She has done extensive research in the archives of the Egyptian Museum, gaining official access to the original field notes of excavations done around the pyramids in the early 1900s. An evolutionary map of feminine consciousness traces fragments of information about matriarchal cultures and pre-dynastic Egypt, prehistoric Greece, and around the world. And directly from Victoria, British Columbia, Canada, I am honored to welcome Dr. Carmen Bolter. Hello, Dr. Bolter, and welcome to Veritas. Thank you very much for having me, Mel. Oh, it's my pleasure. And did you just say to me that you're going back to Egypt for the 29th time this week? Yeah, I am. That's true. And what are you expecting from this new trip? Well, I'm bringing a group, and I actually was just on the phone up till about five minutes ago with um, some people that I'm talking about with a new discovery there. And uh, so I'll be meeting with the Supreme Council of Antiquities, and hopefully we'll be able to do some kind of uh, environmental project that will lead us to a new excavation. And it's very interesting to me because I've had a lot of past life memories about this place and we haven't been able to locate it. So um, I'm pretty excited about that. 
Now, you mentioned the Supreme Council of Antiquities. Has a lot changed from the Mubarak times to now? Well, it seems. It seems that they want to bring tourism back. It's perfectly safe over there, despite what the mainstream media wants to um, drum up about it. And uh, it sounds like they're a little bit more open. So before, during the days of Dr. Zahi Hawass, he was he was pretty much saying yes to people until it came time to go do something. And then and then he'd say no and call it national security. So it seems like they're opening up and the climate is that it's a good time to be proposing these sorts of things. Who took over for Hawass now? Oh, just a second. I'll get his name. Um, I have to look it up. Just one second. That's okay. I'm just I'm just asking because I want to know if that person is more open-minded yeah. and less censoring than Hawass. It's, it's Mamdou El Damati. And I was going to meet him last trip and uh, I... I that the appointment was canceled for some reason. So I am still, you know, trying to find out and get in there and see what they're actually doing. I know other researchers who have access to scanning technology and they found a couple of uh, new tombs in the Valley of the Kings through these scans and another very deep chamber underneath the Red Pyramid in Dashur. And it seemed that the government was ready to move forward and with several of these projects. But, you know, the thing is, is there's so much of Egypt that's still underground. Uh, you know, we'd need practically you know, a, a, a huge workforce of volunteers like they're using at the Bosnian pyramids in order to right. get a lot of this done. So it, it would be really great if the floodgates opened and, and we could go and make some new discoveries. Even though my main focus now will be on the Egyptian area, you mentioned uh, the Boston Pyramids, and you, you probably know uh, Dr. Samir Osmanagic, or Osmanagic as known in the Western world. What, what have you found about the Boston Pyramids? What's your take on it? Well, I spoke at the Hidden Mysteries Conference last year, and um, I was really quite dazzled by the whole thing. And I saw the certificate from a carbon-14 dating of organic material that was found between the third and the fourth course of the pyramid itself. And are you ready? It came back at 38,000 years. Wow. Yes. Now that is absolutely revolutionary and groundbreaking, especially since carbon 14 tends to make things look younger. And, uh, and it kind of breaks down at around 30,000 years. Just you know, so thermoluminescent dating and, and photoluminescent dating are perhaps favorable. But in any case, what they've been finding as that, okay, so the pyramid, the passageways underneath the pyramid were decommissioned. They were filled with rubble. And so they've had up to 550 volunteers a year going and sifting through this material. And it's taken them eight years to go to, to, to excavate two miles. But what they're finding is a unified writing. They're finding these little goddess figures. They're finding things that look like what Michael Tillinger has found in the field in South Africa. If I showed you footage that I have of, of both Michael Tillinger's uh, museum and Dr. Sam's lab, you wouldn't be able to tell the difference between them. And South Africa is not in the neighborhood of Bosnia. That's it's right. a long walk. And so what we have is megalithic in the matriarchal time period. So we've got all the goddess material and all the pyramid material meeting. And that isn't something I expected. So I think that what's going on there is extremely interesting. 
when you say that carbon-14 makes things look younger, is it the analogy that you use? Let's say we paint our house in 2003, and then we, 50 years down the road, get some carbon-14. It doesn't mean that the house was built in 2003. Is this why carbon-14 can be misleading sometimes? No, uh, that metaphor, you know, I've used when it when they're dating the pyramids, in that it could be that they, the last time they did a renovation, a renovation. restoration, yeah. it would have been in 2450 BC, but they most certainly weren't built in 2450 BC, but work was done. But that doesn't mean it's the date. The problem with carbon-14 dating is it's easily contaminated. So if, if you touch the sample, uh, you know, little fragments of skin can fall off and then it's dating the skin, not the, the sample. If you put it in a plastic bag and it can't breathe, then it ends up with some mold on it and then you're dating the mold. And so um, if something like a forest or a fire, campfire, for example, with North American Indians from, you know, 500 years ago or whatever, uh, that might be plus or minus 10 years. And if something is 20,000 years, it's plus or minus 2000. And so there's a lot of room for error. And when I was at a scientific conference in Portland, Oregon, that Zachariah Sitchin was actually speaking at, and a number of other people, um, they actually did an analysis where for, one sample was sent to 14 labs, carbon 14 labs, and they came back with 14 dates. So the unreliability of it is vast. And I think that that is um, un, not, not many people know about that. What is the best way in, then if carbon-14 is not that reliable? Could precession dating be the next best thing? Well, I'm not sure how the processional dating would work, but there's new techniques. And this is part of the discussion. And this is all the way back in 1996. There are the photoluminescent dating and um, and uh, thermoluminescent dating are coming into vogue. However, there are parameters, um, like in Peru, they don't want anything to be more than 6,000 years old. So I'm privy to the story of a sample that could have been much older, that was kept in the lab for over a year. Then they said at the lab, well, we're not going to charge you for this. And it's 5,800 years when the researcher suspected it was more like a million years old. So on the archaeological record right now, nothing in Peru is older than 6,000 years. But that lines up with the Bible. That lines up with, you know, what school teaches us and, you know, the whole patriarchal era. And the agenda of the patriarchy is to erase evidence of everything other than itself. And so most people don't have, you know, the mindset to look beyond that. So we have problems with these labs as well, that there's corruption within the lab to keep the old story going. So um, I definitely think we need discussions like this to illuminate some of these problems so that we really can put the story together. Is all of this about selling salvation. In other words, if we go back to ancient times when spirituality was matching technology and we lived in harmony and probably there was a, a universal language, universal religion, and then things changed when the patriarchy came along and then the Amun priest came along and then all of a sudden they started charging for salvation. Do you think all of this, including religious dogma today, wants to bury all this before 6,000 years 
because selling salvation is what matters? Yes, I think overwhelmingly, yes. And uh, if we were to recognize the extent to which personal empowerment plays a role and that we have God, God asked within us, uh, then all of the power and control systems wouldn't have the grip they have. And it's keeping people locked into giving their power away to the doctor, giving their power away to the church, um, and then being debt slaves, uh, stopping people from understanding um, their past lives and you know who we really are in the whole cosmic scheme of things. What got you hooked into researching pyramids right from the beginning? I started having past life memories when I was six years old. And uh, I didn't know what I was seeing, and I didn't know that it was Egypt. And uh, there I was, little 11-year-old girl. I found a book with a picture of the Sphinx and the pyramid behind it, and I just wanted to climb right into the picture. And I, I was just um, struck with this, how close can you get to it? And I was like, who's talking to me here? Yeah. Um, and, uh, and, and then I, I, I said to my mother, where's Egypt? And she goes, I don't know, look it up in the atlas. So I did, and I go, well, how do you get there? And she goes, I don't know. <laughs> She's chopping vegetables with her little apron, you know, and uh, she says, call the airlines. So I, called <laughs> the air so I called the airlines and found out how much a, a plane ticket would be to Cairo. And I was making 25 cents an hour as, uh, you know, as babysitting. Right. And I planned to go to Egypt as soon as possible when I was 11. <laughs> And what happened afterwards? I mean, you, you went to, to became a professor and from academia, as you know, there, there's not that many of you, uh, Robert, Dr. Robert Schock and some others step outside that box. How was it working in academia and you having these unorthodox views that academia doesn't, doesn't promote? Well, I was going to do my PhD in archaeology and I did a, a year of prep for that because uh, they wanted all the undergrad courses to, to line up with that. And uh, it was at University of Calgary. And uh, I was invited by the dean to apply. And, and then I realized I, I had it all set up with the dean at Cairo University and the Faculty of Archaeology to supervise my research. Um, I did an awful lot of, uh, I spoke at a couple of international um, uh, conferences because the library at the University of Calgary was very, very well funded in the uh, Department of Egyptology in, the, in that uh, domain because of a professor. And so, I mean, I got a lot done, but then I realized that with unorthodox views, you don't get to publish. You, you only can publish what follows the story. And so the minute I found out they were going to make me jump through all these hoops and that the things I really wanted to research and suspected were true, that I had hypothesized about, weren't going to come to fruition, I decided to go to Asia and I uh, started working at a university there and then it was actually a college. And then I ended up doing my PhD in computational linguistics. But the reason was, is that it, it's the only discipline that will be, that's cross-disciplinary, if you will. It's the only um, department that's cross-disciplinary. So you have cognitive psychology and social anthropology and, you know, the, the whole functioning of the brain and all these different things come together in linguistics. And so um, I worked on a number of international academic cooperation projects uh, through the Ministry of Education of, in the Republic of China. It's Taiwan. And they funded my research. And then I ended up getting um, a lot of uh, equipment 
through these grants. And that's how I became a filmmaker. So then I turned around and did the Pyramid Code uh, to showcase what, what I really thought the story was. And I continue to study archaeology, but um, it's, it's, it's not open enough for me to have wanted to do the PhD there. So I've kind of been able to keep my, my strategy and um, my integrity with this material uh, without having to sell my soul to the whole academic system. You know, the Egyptians at the root of all their secrets was the transmutation of the atom. And we keep calling them the, you know, the ancient ones, the, the, the ones that didn't have that much technology. But if we cannot replicate the technology today, and we all know of, of many free energy devices that we have today, zero-point zero energy devices, quantum vacuum zero-point, over-unity machines, call it what you will. It all exists today, but they've all been repressed due to control and profits. Do you see the same thing happen back then? Somebody came along, when patriarchy came along, and they hid that information from the future? Or is there an information gap between, say, 4,000, 6,000 years ago, till now well there's definitely a concerted effort for an information gap i do think that there was a takeover uh at this point it's unverifiable like we can't go and say who did what when um, but that's why a lot of my hunches come from past life memory and of course uh, reincarnation was outlawed in 323 AD by Emperor Constantine. So that's kind of robbed us of, of the conversation and uh, the vocabulary for dealing with these things. But in my memories, uh, there really was a takeover where uh, an off-planet group came and they wanted to use the technology that we had used positively and use it negatively. And so the memory has this big mad scramble to try to shut down the, you know, the energy that the pyramids were generating in order to, um, you know, stop disaster. And part of the memory is that we, 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 we just got vaporized. I mean, the whole thing went down and there's evidence in pretty much every pyramid of a huge amount of force that cracked that solid stone mass. And so you see that in Dashur, you see that in Giza, you see that in various places. So uh, it's almost like the entirety of the Band of Peace, which is the pyramid fields north and south of the Giza Plateau, just exploded. And that was not, you know, the, what the intent was of, um, but the pyramids still didn't fall down. And, and when, um, you know, Napoleon and his group were, were looking to get into the pyramid, they couldn't figure out how to do it. So they actually used explosives and they still couldn't destroy the pyramid so they were definitely built to stay and uh and yes there's been there's been an awful lot of battles over the actual energy just like i told you offline the pyramid code the documentary i have to tell you it's one of the most informative documentaries i've ever seen on the subject i learned so much i i knew that that the the river nile was closer to the pyramids but i didn't know the specifics eight miles from the pyramids to the, the, the mouth of the river today. What do you think happened? Did the river moved or was it the width of the river that shortened eight miles? No, 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 no. It's, it's a migration. And um, this is in geological terms. 
it, it just migrated across, but it actually migrated from, you know, 50 miles on the other side. If you uh, listen to Hakim, the Indigenous mm -hmm. wisdom keeper that's featured in the Pyramid Code. And if you look at the map of Egypt, you can actually see where the oases are to the left of the Nile. And now the river is migrated quite a distance. Uh, and that's part of how we can do dating. Because how long does it take a river to migrate? I mean, it's going to be migrating a couple of inches per year, perhaps, right? So it's just kind of moving across uh, north-south. If you look at the map of Africa, it's moving to the right. And uh, But what's true is that the, the water table in, in front of the Sphinx is percolating up water again. And uh, there, people were saying there was a big controversy maybe two years ago where uh, somebody took a video at night and they were trying to say that they, they had little machines and that I they remember. found all the records and they were taking all the, the, the artifacts out and that Zahi was stealing everything. Yeah. And, and I was there. I was living there at the what time. What was it then? It's the, it's the water was coming up and they were worried that they were going to flood the seats in the sound and light show which sits just a little bit to the left of the Sphinx when you're facing it and, and you're right on the plateau. And so they were distributing sandbags to prevent the flooding. And they had a little machine that was moving some earth around to make a bit of a berm. But the, the fact is, if you really look here, the, to the right of the, the Sphinx's side, there used to be a temple of Isis. I've got old pictures from 1910 where there's a temple that was below and during Zahi's time, he cemented over and then paved over the top of that. And they created this uh, petrified wood garden. And the area is probably 250 feet across and wide of cement. So if you were, and, and the gate, the, the east gate of the Giza Plateau is right there. It's the Sphinx Gate. It comes out onto Sphinx Square, right? Right there. And if they were to excavate anything, they would need to close that gate and get a lot of jackhammers for a long time. And there's, you would know, but with this cementing over, they made sure no one was ever gonna go down there. Even though there are passageways inside the Sphinx, but they've been doing work inside the Sphinx now for a while. But I was in there before they did all that work a number of times. I spent a lot of time inside the body of the Sphinx. And, um, so it was just a big hoax. And if you looked at that video, there was lights that jumped around and it was dark, but nowhere did you see an outline of the pyramid shape or the, the head of the Sphinx. You could have taken that video with machine sounds in Chicago. You know, it, 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 there's nothing that resembled the pyramid. But this is what happens is when someone's telling you, oh, blah, 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 they're stealing this and that. You have to be able to debunk these stories. Otherwise, you'll, you'll get very confused. When the whole system of matriarchy changed, did it change worldwide more or less at the same time? In other words, it happened in Egypt, it happened in Mesoamerica and so on? Yes. Yes. And and, and my study of this it goes far and wide because when I was director of the Women's Therapy and Research Center in Calgary, I was um, supervising social workers, psychologists, and research assistants. And so the Southern Alberta Institute of Technology said they wanted to send me two full-time research assistants. And they said, you can choose the research question. And so I thought long and hard about this, because if I was going to have a whole year of researchers, I wanted to make sure I had the right question. And so my question was, what happened when we had matriarchal civilizations 
that gave way to patriarchy. And so what ended up happening in terms of that research was they were finding references to certain articles, but no one had the journals. And so then I ended up having to travel to Montreal to the Concordia University where they had the Simone de Beauvoir Institute Library. Remember, she wrote The Second Sex. And this is where all these journals were. And I ended up digging deep and doing 10 years of research. And that's what ended up uh, turning into Angels and Archetypes, an evolutionary map of feminine consciousness. And most of the things that we still had records of that came from previously farther back than 6,000 years had to do with beer making or bread making, periodicity, fermentation. But really, there was a very big concerted effort to get rid of um, all things matriarchal. But yes, I think it did happen worldwide. And I also think that we're going to come to see this period, the last 6,000 years, as the patriarchal hiccup, because it's, you know, it's the the empire is collapsing. And I think, go ahead. No, no, go ahead. Finish your statement. Well, just that we're returning to things that are more connected, connecting with each other, community-based, not so focused on money, Um, you know, things that aren't seen still exist, symbols, dream time, uh, consciousness, all of these are values of matriarchy. Matriarchy isn't the opposite of patriarchy where then women control men. Um, I think patriarchy is a failed experiment of what happens if you disconnect everything and lop off the sacred feminine, you end up with the mess we're in now. Well, I just look at the past and in all the, the cultures, and like I mentioned before, universal language, universal culture, harmony everywhere around the world. And I just find it hard to believe that somewhere around the planet, a small force all of a sudden changed the mind of the population in order to introduce patriarchal society, which became, you know, gave way to the warlike mentality that we have today. That's right. And history is when the soldiers came. So it was. Now, I got a little pet theory about this, if you'd like to hear it. Please, please. Okay. Let's just think about hunter-gatherer times, when famine was ever imminent. And so everybody's walking around and uh, then they see a plant and they say, oh, well, we can just pick this plant. And then they said, well, why don't we take this plant and put it close to the mouth of the cave? And then they thought, well, now let's have rows of plants. Agriculture. And, then, and then we have enough to, to, to store food. And then instead of procreating once every five years, for example, women started procreating every year. And then all of a sudden men realized that they had something to do with the seed, right? And as soon as they realized they had something to do with, because uh, it was always um, procreation envy, right? And and somehow they went, oh, well, you know, we have something to do with making babies, so we're going to take over. <laughs> Interesting. So are you saying that that's what gave rise to agriculture and civilization, just bringing it all close together as opposed to going far away to pick yeah. up plants? Something like that, where there was enough food that famine was no longer ever eminent. So when you look at the matriarchal cultures, a corpulent woman with some fat on her was more fertile. Mm-hmm. And so now we've demonized all things that are fat. And, you know, women are spending their whole life trying to be skinny. And, you know, of course, we know we've got it all backwards. Yeah. Now you look at the kings and queens, look at all the paintings when they depict the, the obesity back there, that was, it denoted wealth. It uh, now it's the opposite. Now, what were some of the attributes they had back then that we lost? I heard in the documentary that we may even had 
360 census as opposed to the five census that we have now yes now con consciousness was the highest value and now truth is optional in our culture right and so we've come a long way from there but if you think about full spectrum senses where your awareness you've got the eyes in the back of your head the hair stands up on your arms all of these different senses and connections so when you get a feeling in your gut or you get a thought at the same time some kind of can all this connectivity would give rise to 360 senses and Hakim was very um, adamant about this and so in my creation of the pyramid code I actually took a goddess figure with her chakras and stood her inside a sphere and so I think of the connectivity of the cross uh, the places where the sphere crosses like if you think about a globe and the latitude and longitude lines um, another sense would be um, a connection between two of the senses um, and um, and also the entrainment of the chakras which are connected to the glandular system and so deep knowing came from this level of connectivity and there's something called synesthesia which is a word that means the synthesizing of the senses and this is actually something that's quite natural though we don't seem to do it much anymore but that's like hearing a picture or seeing music or smelling the flowers when you're watching television and somebody's got roses you know like all these things are are are, are waking up in in some people and babies can do it some babies and then the whole way that we're educated kind of robs us of it you know when discussing the transference of knowledge via initiation which is what we see in a lot of the ancient ones some people say to me well mel isn't that the epitome of censorship and i say no the teacher appears when the student is ready he cannot expect to receive all the information until you are ready is this the way that knowledge perhaps the the engineering and all those incredible feats that they did back then was it transferred to the population via initiation okay well let's make a distinction here uh because there was always the the the, the general populace working in the fields tending their cattle and that sort of thing but then there was the the class of initiates and high-level initiates and i think it was something like they do in russia and china where they go to nursery schools with three and four year olds and you know observe them and say well you'd make a good ballerina and you'd make a good gymnast and you'd make a good pianist come with us and we'll train you and they start them very young so i think that uh individuals uh, were recognized as having a propensity for abilities and they were brought to the temples and then they were trained and so um and, and the initiations were were tests and there was the purification of the mind body and emotions and then yoga was invented in or originated in egypt not india and migrated to india and so there were all these initiations and then they would have they would go through stages and all of it was about fortifying them so that they could handle the massive amounts of energy that were coming down uh in the what i call the band of peace which is the pyramid fields north and south of the giza plateau there's 22 pyramids and so I think that the initiates were trained, and I say like human divining rods, where the celestial energy was connecting with the telluric energy on the earth, and it was being passed up and down, very much like the neural synapses 
jump across. They don't, the nerves don't touch each other. A hormone jumps across and then your, your, your brain can give your arm the message to go up and to move. And so they were, the initiates were part of a circuitry, a massive amount of energy. And it was sound and light technology, not something we're familiar with now. They were able to transmute um, the atom. And in the energy machines, uh, like Chris Dunn talks about in the Giza power plant, they were blowing the hydrogen and the oxygen molecules out of water. So it's all water technology as well. And um, But we're made of water. Don't they say we're 70 to 80% water? And so if you can transmute the atom of the water outside the body, what happens if you transmute it inside the body? And it's said that abilities like cities, S-I-D-H-I, um, were, were, were part of that. So the first one was telepathy, and then manifestation, alchemy, bilocation, uh, teleportation, and anti-gravity, levitation. And so once they were able to tap into one of these abilities, the rest of them would come quite quickly. And so they had to have very, very pure physical instruments in order to be able to accomplish this, which was what the high-level initiate training was, was composed of. And as they say, use it or lose it. Did we stop using those abilities or we were, or were we taught to not use them? And that's why maybe evolution took care of the rest. Well, everything now is about dumbing us down and making us sicker and pointing us away from what's healthy. And that is the tragedy of our culture at the moment, uh, because we're not we're we're not supporting the others. We're not supporting the development of those as much as we we should and could. If you know the powers that pretend got out of the way and things were able to be self-regulated, and we we nurtured children and respected their natural abilities, I think that we would see that we have the same DNA that they had in the ancient times. Perhaps they were running on 12 strands of DNA and we're running on two now, but I do think that the evolution is coming back. And so that's two to three to six to nine to 12, that every dimension passes through the room we're sitting in right now. Um, and we can be accessing it from the 12th dimension or from the, the you know third dimension. So, it's it's a question of of training and health and connecting to nature and respecting the individual instead of trying to make everybody the same, which is what school tries to do. And so um, our evolution is being interrupted by the system, by the established system, by education, by government, by taxes, interest, utilities. Right. It's all it's all um, it's all robbing us and preoccupying us. And then the propaganda that comes on TV is, you know, keeps on turning us into consumers, um, making sure we don't move into higher levels. And even the simple act of watching television uh, separates us from connecting with spirit. This is a non-traditional question, but they had devotion to our sun, the solar system, the cosmos in general. Since our DNA reacts to photons, light, do you think they had knowledge that perhaps the sun and maybe even ener energies from outside of our solar system had something to do with altering our DNA? Absolutely. 
And we misinterpret everything because we look through patriarchal lenses. And as I mentioned before, archaeology is about keeping that old story going. And if you think about Akhenaten and Nefertiti in the um, Amarna period of the 18th dynasty, they, they say they worship the sun. But this is the wrong word. It, it, there was a knowledge that the sun connected on some level. And throughout the whole 18th dynasty, there was a resurgence of this old knowledge. And so if we start with Hatshepsut, um, she claimed to be divine. And because she was star, she knew she was starseed. And there's even a, fres a fresco story, a wall at the temple of Queen Hatshepsut um, in uh, Luxor, where um, she's describing that her father's body was taken over by a high level being. And when he impregnated her mother, it was a starseed. And, and so she thought of herself as divine in the pure sense. And had she not been a woman, she may have been remembered in history, history, his story, That's right. uh, as, the, as the best pharaoh ever. But, uh, you know, she, she had expeditions and they went and they went to the land of Punt and they came back with frankincense and myrrh and all kinds of exotic animals. And, you know, it was peaceable and all that. Well, then a few generations later, we have Amenhotep II, and uh, I've just, you know, discovered the the, the temple of uh, Kalabsha, which is right beside the high dam in Aswan. And most people go and look at the hydroelectric plant. Well, we bypass that and get on a little boat and go because it was one of the eighteen temples that was drowned by the uh, the flooding of the of the uh, Aswan Dam. So uh, they just went, whoops, oh, all these temples drowned. Like they knew that Abu Simbel was going to have a problem. So they gave them like three months to cut it up and move it. Um, anyway, in this temple of Kalabsha, you see Amenhotep II. And there's, a whole, there's floor to ceiling uh, frescoes that are showing the training of the Pharaoh's son. Who's Amenhotep III? Ah, and who's he? Akhenaten's father. And so... We think that, you know, that this whole Amarna period sprang out of nothing, but there was a lot of changing of the, the value system. And so the Almun priesthood was running everything. They were charging people for their salvation. Uh, you, can't, you can't get to the other side without us. Give us half your crop. Um, and Akhenaten uh, and Nefertiti were like, you know what? We're not doing this. We're starting over again. And, you know, they had a peaceable, beautiful, artistic, creative, peaceful, equal, balanced place. And so what do the history books say? That Akhenaten was deformed and sick and, you know, they closed all the temples and they wanted to go to one god. And they didn't get rid of Hathor and Isis. And they didn't, they did what they say, you know, that he was crazy and he was demented. No. He went back to a true spirituality, and the priests couldn't collect 50% of everybody's money. Sound familiar? <laughs> it sounds familiar, exactly. Thank you very much. Now, Hatchet, uh, as you said, if she had been a man, she would have been probably known as the best of all. But uh, 22 years, I believe, was her rule, uh, the time of her ruling. Um, was, was that long in comparison to other pharaohs? No, Ramses, I think, ruled for 67 years, something like that, and had as many wives. Um, well, yeah, yes, no, I, I, I don't know how to compare that, but um, I mean, it's relatively long. Now, Tutankhamun, the, Tutankhamun, 
what is it, Tutankaten, as opposed to Tutankhamen. Why the difference that we hear between the names? You know, Mel, I have to say, you've done your homework, and I'm really liking your questions. <laughs> <laughs> well, I love your work. <laughs> okay, so the Aten is the sun. The Amun is the darkness. And so just the way we have a procession of equinoxes and we go through astrological ages, they had five different ages in Egypt, and they five different stages of the day every day. And Amun is the dark, the dark, dark, dark of dark before the dawn, and the dawn is Heper, okay? And that's the beginning where the sun is climbing its way up through the sky. And um, and so this, the, the Aten, okay, Amun meant that you were aligned with darkness. Aten meant you were aligned with light. And so King Tut was raised in Amarna. I do not believe for one second that he was Akhenaten's um, son. That just runs against the grain inside me. And I think he was raised in the royal palace at Amarna, and he was trained to be able to walk both because the Amun priesthood was really angry that they broke away and that they were doing something and that the, they weren't making money off salvation, as you say. And so they were plotting to somehow get in there and, and ruin Amarna. And, you know, they, they poisoned um, one of Nefertiti and Akhenaten's daughters, which just broke um, Akhenaten. It's kind of like uh, Anna and the king when uh, Monkey, he had a hundred kids and he liked Monkey best and Monkey died and then he was inconsolable. I think there's some parallel structure there. And so Tut was to walk both, he was to walk the world of Aten, but be able to be with the Amun and try to keep the light, if you, if you understand that. And so when um, he he took over. They changed his name. They changed his name to Tutankhamun when he took over. And I say that when the Amun priesthood finally figured out that he really was of the Aten, he had been kind of faking it that he was one of them. They killed him, and it was a rush job. So they took all the stuff from Amarna. There was a cache of six mummies. Uh, in the Valley of the Kings, and they took those mummies and put them somewhere else, and they took all the furniture, not all, but a lot of the furniture from Amarna and just shoved it into this tiny tomb, covered him in blue lotus petals, and sealed it up. And none of that stuff was his. It was stuff from where he had lived. And uh, and so, you know, you got all the DNA testing that uh, Zahi was doing to try to prove that, um, and what a show that was. I followed that story for 12 years through the Japanese team that was going to do the DNA testing through Scott Woodward um, from Utah, Brigham Young University. And they kept shut, they, they, they'd get all in place, National Geographic cameras, and then they'd come and shut the whole national security and shut it down. So then they got DNA equipment in the basement of the National Museum in, uh, in Cairo, and they were going to do their own testing. Well, having studied archaeology, mitochondrial DNA passes through the matrilineal line. It goes through the mother line. And even though that was dynastic, Egypt was all patriarchal. The pharaoh that came next always had to marry the daughter of um, the pharaoh before him so that the energy would go through the matri matrilineal line, which is mtDNA, mitochondrial DNA. So when they did the DNA testing for Tut and Akhenaten, they used the Y chromosome. They didn't even do the test properly. And what they were trying to do 
by you, and I knew he was going to do this. I knew Zahi was going to come out and say that um, Tot was Akhenaten's, even though they say that, you know, Akhenaten was crazy and deformed and everything. You know what the point was? He's white. Mm. They wanted Tot to be white. <laughs> I mean, come on. I was at the press conference February 17th, uh, 2009, I think, when, and I was the, the, the curator of the museum's secretary saw me, and I had come down to see if I could get involved in that. And of course, it was, you know, limited to just uh, the press itself. And she saw me coming to the door where the offices are, the, the curators of the museum, and she nodded and told all the guards to let me in. <laughs> so I'm listening to him say it in, in Arabic. And uh, I went, he's doing exactly what I thought. I understood him in Arabic. And then I stayed for the English part. And that's exactly what he did. It was predictable as could be. And um, yeah, there's really something to that for sure. <laughs> so the y, the y chromosome only proved that it came from the mother, not the father, right? No, it's the other way around. The other way around. Y, the Y chromosome is all the masculine stuff. And you're not going to prove the lineage unless you can go through the, the matrilineal line. So they needed to test the mtDNA. The mitochondrial DNA, yes. And, and they the tested the wrong stuff. And the other thing is that they kept having all this. Here is a mummy of Akhenaten, and you see a skeleton. It's a skeleton that's in the fetal position. Mummies are lying down on their back, and they're wrapped up in bandages. Mm -hmm. But the, the thing is, as long as they keep using the words, and they try to, they try to get, and people just go along and get confused because they don't know how to, how to sort through all this. They're never going to find the mummy of Akhenaten, the Amun priesthood, killed them, cut them up in a, probably the Osiris legend of 14 pieces and threw them in the water. They're never going to find the, 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 the mummy of Akhenaten or Nefertiti, if you ask me. Why that mythological story of cutting him pieces and throwing him in the water, just to, to make it mythological or unbelievable? You see, I think there's a lot of patchwork going on. And I, I you know, we, we, we get partial stories. It's, it's like the Dead Sea Scrolls, if you've ever seen them. If you really look, there's probably like 11 or 12% of the scroll there in little pieces that are as big as a quarter or as big as a, a cup, right? But, and, and, the, and then they're making up the story. Well, if, if, if in this conversation, if only every 10th word was, under, was heard, you think the people would get the whole conversation? No. Impossible, impossible. And so I think they're patching it all together to hold up their story. That's all there is to it. Now, why it's, so much censorship in the name of national security all the time? Well, that's just about that's their favorite excuse. I mean, what, what do you think the uh, NSA is? Well, I know, but in, it's, in, it's in security Egypt. Security theater, pardon me? <laughs> yeah, exactly. But in Egypt, is it because they don't want their national patrimony to be questioned? Well, I think it's a bigger machine. We know the United States has been giving Egypt $2 billion a year. Right. Um, this is the the world, the whole globalists that are got their finger everywhere. And the idea is keep the story the way it is. Keep the people ignorant. Don't let anybody figure it out. The end. I mean, that's it. See, I always wonder that. I always wonder why given, giving billions of dollars every year to Egypt, they have no oil. So what is the geographical or, 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 or military interest in, in being that part of the world? Is it because of Israel? I mean, what, what is the, the reason? And now I think you just confirmed it to me. It's because they want to continue the history, his story, the way it was. Well, and Egypt has some pretty strong ties with Israel. When they were doing their talks just recently, they went to sure. Egypt to do it. 
uh, A. B, this is the IMF, uh, John Perkins. Uh, you know, they go in there and they, they want to corrupt people. They give $2 billion to, it was Mubarak who was yep. receiving it. It wasn't the people getting it. Economic hitman. Economic hitman. And so you think that's not going, that's been going on. And it's just the corruption is obscene because I calculated the fortune that Mubarak has, uh, uh, pardon me, amassed would be enough. Like there's 60 million people in Egypt. I think that's right. It would have been enough for every man, woman, and child to get, I don't, I forget now, 10 or $20,000. So like 50, $60,000 per family. You think that's not going to help them? Yeah, he Fix had billions. Wagon wheel on their cart. He had get billions. a new school. Exactly. And the infrastructure is just broken, absolutely broken. I mean, they're, they're, they're trying. They've done. They've made some improvements and put in the ring road and that sort of thing. But now they're introducing foreigners to come in and do some of this architecture. But a lot of it had to do with the Cultural Revolution in 1954, where you know they kicked everybody out that wasn't Egyptian. And so the people had the expertise even in the matches to make matches in the factory and it's striking light. Um, you know, they, they, did, they, they, they kicked everybody out and they left the people who didn't have the knowledge there. And now, as I say, everything's a little bit broken in Egypt. So you strike a match and it doesn't light and, you know, you turn the handle on the door in the bathroom and the, the handle comes off in your hand. I mean, everything's a little bit broken. Now, why was it that if you look at the, the list of kings, and queens, Hatshepsut, Akhenaten, and Tutankhamun are not part of that list. Well, what do you think? It's because the resurgence of spirituality, of true connection to spirit, not religious, my God's better than your God, was replicated by them. They knew what the truth was. And so when the corruption came, they had to get rid of all evidence of the truth. I mean, it's, it's, again, same stew, different gravy. I'm thinking of the Temple of Abydos, the, the uncanny depiction of, of modern aircraft, like a plane or a helicopter. And nowadays, why are Egyptian tour guides explicitly instructed not to point these out to tourists, not even allowing, you know, taking photographs in the area, but not pointing those very, I mean, if you had to take me there, wouldn't that be one of the first things you point out to me? Look at that. Does that look like an airplane? Does that look like a helicopter? And they don't even point that out. Why? Well, it's so high. Okay. For, okay. I just want to point something out here because I, I like to look, see patterns. I think the last 10 questions that you've asked me has the same answer because they don't want us to know the truth. And that is like, it's so thorough. I mean, that's, it's just ridiculous. But this King's list that took uh, not Nefertiti and Tut out of it is at the same place. That's Abydos. That's in the Temple of Seti. The other thing is that there was a lintel that they covered it up. So they came along and they saw all this magic stuff and they, they covered it up. And I think it's about 10 years ago, something came crashing down on the floor and underneath it, was this this image that you're referring to was something that looks like a helicopter and a and a spaceship and then they said oh well it's a combination of hieroglyphic it's like uh no it isn't anyway i mean the only way that this stuff works is if we're completely asleep and stupid or, so brain, or they brainwashed want us asleep and stupid or brainwashed that all of the above and you know what people are still curious i mean they haven't they haven't um gotten that out you know people still want to know the truth some some other people are too busy going shopping. But even that's breaking down because people don't have money anymore. 
Now, talking about the waters uh, in the Nile, uh, when they were close to the pyramid, was water a key ingredient in the pyramids, pyramid's functionality? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. You bet it did. Because what would happen, there's a honeycomb arrangement of passageways, and that is key. All functioning pyramids have water underneath them. And there's something about the zigzag pattern of the five, that's almost like honeycomb, I said it, but the five sides of the honeycomb. And the water, as the Nile would flood, it would fill up these passageways and it would force them through. And it's like Victor Schauberger talks about, you know, the angles of water energizes it somehow. But also the passageways that were man-made had a certain amount of granite and um, a crystal, quartz crystal content. And so the energy was getting charged on the water by moving it around. And so as it flooded, it, it, it added to the pressure and then it's moving and char- getting charged through the crystals, and then it was forced up into the pyramid, and then that's how the hydrogen and the oxygen molecules um, got blasted apart. And so what they were doing is they were harnessing the hydrogen. And you know we know now, too, that a lot of the free energy devices are working with hydrogen. Now, since you mentioned the, the honeycomb aquifers, let me bring Nikola Tesla to the equation. Oh. Tesla had built his tower in Long Island in order to transmit wireless electricity. And everybody who listens to this show know what happened. Edison came along, J.P. Morgan didn't want to finance, and the rest is history. But I couldn't help but notice while watching the, the, the pyramid code how the bottom area was built around honeycomb aquifers just like the pyramids. Could the pyramids have been wireless energy transmitters? And Tesla was emulating the technology and harnessing the energy that way too? Absolutely. And there's another feature that you see the descending passageways going at an angle, maybe about a 45 degree angle down into the pyramid. There were two of those passageways underneath the Tesla tower. Okay. And so Tesla came in with a lot of knowledge. I mean, he was, he was, you know, doing his experiments, trying to make it work again, but it seems to me that he had some kind of cellular memory going on. Why couldn't he be a reincarnate of a high level initiate Mm -hmm. from then? You know, and of course he's going to be um, smashed down so that people can make money. Utilities should be free. They should be free. Especially when it's available to everybody in our atmosphere, in our stratosphere, in, in our water. And I just wonder, so many things that we can do. We, we're fixated on solar. We're fixated on nuclear as the alternative to, to coal. But imagine tapping into this endless source that comes directly from our sun and from the entire galaxy. You bet. And there's 6,000 patents that have been bought up by people who want them yeah. not to come out. I mean, like this whole thing about the petrodollar and being backed by the military and all this stuff. I mean, it's it's just obscene that it's still going on. Do you think there may be a connection? You call them the powers that pretend. I like that. I call them the powers that want to be. Do you think uh, that they may be the same group that began this problem in the past? You mean way back? Way back? I never thought that. But because the patterns are there. Maybe they're wearing a different type of military suit right now or they're carrying different kinds of weapons, but the system of control seems to be more or less the same. You're giving me pause. <laughs> well, that's a good one. <laughs> and the question is, how do we reverse this? Do we have to wait? If we believe that the age of you know ascend, ascending, where I hope that we are now at the bottom ascending, is that where you think we are? 
Well, with December 21st, 2012, me and 80 people were sitting on a rooftop with the Great Pyramid, you know, right beside us, right in front of us. Oh, wow. And did the meditation as it hit sunset and the whole thing. And we all thought that, you know, we're going to, you know, start to come out of it. And there are signs that people are waking up, but we are still stuck by the powers that are running it. And it seems that, you know, they should have lost the grip a long time ago. Perhaps the currency system should have collapsed a long time ago. I listened to a number of speakers who can't understand why it hasn't collapsed yet. And I've been saying that it's like a waterfall being held up by toothpicks. Um, and somehow by quantitative easing and throwing money, you know, and making fake money, uh, it's making it look like the economy is, um, you know, they're, they're telling us it's recovering, but it's on life support. So I think that if the stick got taken out of the spokes on the bicycle, that we could probably end world hunger and and really do a lot to fixing the planet and letting the the planet heal itself without interference within months you know if there was a magnetic levitation railway system that covered the whole planet and things could be moved around freely we could fix this but th there is a tremendous force that seems so dark and evil now if we want to talk about matriarchy patriarchy in the matriarchal system the circle of life and death they didn't have a word for death it was just, you know, being birthed into another dimension when you passed. Westing. Westing, the sun goes down, the sun comes up, the sun goes down, the sun comes up. So, you know, like midwifing death, returning to the arms of the great mother. Well, that would have been right up the ancient Egyptians alley. But what we've done is we've sublimated death into the shadow of the whole culture. So we're afraid of dying. Uh, they think you only live once and, you you know, you go to hell and all the stuff that they made up. It's, it's, it's clear they made it all up. But because death has been relegated to the shadow, we have to look at 10,000 deaths a week on TV. You know, everybody's getting murdered and death is, you know, like, an, it's just all so distorted because this whole construct has been distorted. And so um, it, are we going to get out? We have to. I mean, like, it, it, I don't know how many, if people realize the precipice we're sitting on. I mean, if they keep everybody distracted and, as I said, shopping and watching TV, which is the Ministry of Lies, um, yeah. I mean, not, there's nothing true about it. And and uh, they anyway, like, it's dire. It, if, if people have a window of tolerance, so we'll, we, there's whaling over here and there's pollution over there and chemtrails and all this stuff. People, oh, no, no, don't tell me anymore. I can't handle it. Yeah. Well, how about smart meters and, and Wi-Fi, Wi-Fi, I call it. Wi-Fi, um, I like that. <laughs> yeah. You know, but all this stuff, and they say, well, you're so sensitive, you know, it sucks to be you. It's like, no, this is breaking down your cells too. And by the time you know it, it may be too late, you know? Like see, that's the problem. and Fukushima and all that stuff. Like, you know, like people, people can hardly contain it all. And I mean, if, I mean, how much more can we take? I mean, it's amazing that we're not all dead already. But that's a problem, Carmen. I think uh, many people, I think I see these two opposites. There's the people who are always on, you know, watching TV, being in fear because there's a new boogeyman, a new terrorism boogeyman. Oh, now we have Ebola. Oh, now we have this. Now we have that. It's important to be aware of it. Some people just, they love the fear porn and there are others who want to be, you know, bury their heads in the sand and not want to know about it. You, you, you try to enlighten them and they don't want to hear you. What's wrong with being aware of the information? 
But well, what, what I tell people is just click your your remote control. Get off your subliminal tube. You're being fed. You're being hypnotized with 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 falsities. It's true. It's true, and it works. And that's the thing. If you think about what the patriarchy's done, I mean, hats off to them. They wanted us all asleep, and it worked. <laughs> now they're not being a hundred percent effective because otherwise, you and I wouldn't be speaking here today. Well, it didn't work on all of us. So it's the minority who always is the agent of change in humanity. How do people like you and those people that you associate yourself with, how do we make the change? Well, I think we're making it. I'm very inspired by the level that this conversation's happening on. Like we're not just, you know, dictating the ABCs and the XYZs of pyramid energy. It's, it's a conversation. You're informed. And I feel inspired by that. And I think that hopefully the people that are listening will think, yeah, I think so too. That's change. I don't accept, you know, microwaves and, you know, the whole cell phone thing. And I don't have, you know, I'm hardwired on my computer. I, I was exposed to enough radiation in my life and, you know, took 48 flights one year. Anyway, so I'm not going to take pharmaceuticals. I don't want the doctor to diagnose me with anything, you know. I'm, I stay away from a lot of things. And so I'm not, I've, I've divorced myself to the extent that I can from that. And I embrace nature to the extent that I can and things that are natural and think about the distant past and try to understand who we were. What else can we do? But the whole thing could fall apart and, and the system could crash and there could be a lot of, a lot, there's already a lot of pain on the planet. There could be a lot more pain if, depending on how it goes. Um, so it's it, 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 it's it's I'm thinking Thelma and Louise. Let's just you know accelerate when we're going to go jump off the cliff. You know, it's like um, how do we change consciousness? Consciousness needs to be the highest value. And we have to take our one and only intermission. But let me just end with this: I've heard so many versions of what the true purpose of the pyramid was, ranging from being a beacon, a tool for consciousness, a power plant sophisticated harmonic structures, and even harmonic healing structures, steps to mind gold, stargates, you name it. So many versions. When we come back, I want your opinion. What do you think the real purpose of the pyramids were, not only in Egypt, but maybe around the world? There must be a common denominator of these and the way they were positioned. Were they really scattered or they had a purpose in being where they are today? How do people buy your book, watch the documentaries, and learn more about your work? Carmen. Uh, PyramidCode.com is the website. Uh, the documentary has aired in 39 countries and is on Netflix in eight countries now. Australia, New Zealand, uh, United States, Canada, Malta, and I forget the other one. Um, and um, I've got interactive-theletteru.com, interactiveu.com, which is an online learning and social action network. And I'm leading an Egypt tour, leaving uh, in a couple of days. And I have to tell you, just like I said offline, the Pyramid Code must be one of the most fascinating and informative documentaries I've ever seen. Five stars on Netflix. Loved it. So anybody who's listening, you have to watch it if you really want to delve into I mean, I have 26 pages of questions here, folks. You think I'll be able to cover all that today? Absolutely not. So you have to go and watch the Pyramid Code and more of Dr. Bolter's work. This is Mel Fabregas. You're listening to Veritas, and I'm here with my very special guest, Dr. Carmen Balter. So much more when we come back. Don't go anywhere. 
Thank you for listening to the first segment of this very important interview. To listen to the rest, go to veritasradio.com and subscribe. You will receive your login immediately. We'll take a short intermission, listen to some music, and we'll be right back. Enjoy. Drama to carcadeo 